on this week's Bet the Process podcast, we have a legitimate football soccer fo- soccer analyst. We have Jimmy Conrad, who has uh, more World Cup wins than Rufus or I, or more World Cup appearances than either of us combined. And um, then we talk a little bit about our World Cup Calcutta. So it's a all soccer, almost all soccer, but we give a couple minus EV picks too, like we always do. So with that, let's start the process. Bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast where Rufus apparently woke up on the wrong side of the bed or didn't sleep last night. He seems frazzled, more frazzled than usual. If you remember, Rufus Peabody is the number one most feared golf better in the world and he's now groaning as i talk about that and i am jeff ma the number one interrupter of the world but formerly professional blackjack player um entrepreneur i don't know what are the other mo- I, mean, I should maybe we should actually just let each other do each other's bios from now on okay what are you entrepreneur you tell me, you're doing my bio Jeff is the inspiration for the movie 21 and the book Bringing Down the House. He is a he has started and sold numerous startups. Be brief, be brief, concise. And is the former VP of startups for Microsoft. There we go. Jeff Ma. Did you just read my Twitter bio? You basically just read my Twitter. I didn't bio. actually, but I uh seemed like I could you have. Did. I know. I was You could have? You were I, capable of doing that? Probably. How was your last week, Rufus? What what kind of things transpired for you? Were you surprised by that Georgia-Tennessee game? No, I wasn't surprised by that game. Um, what transpired for me? I was I'm I am in Vegas. I was out here for some business stuff. Um, I leave tomorrow. I got to play some golf. That was nice. Where'd you play? Um, let's see. We played Bali High and Southern Highlands. Who was we? Um, myself my brother and um, people that we were meeting with. Got it. Did you play with our friend and Shane? Shane and Shane joined Shane played only nine holes though. Cause he was, uh, he was under the weather a little bit, but mm. got it. Yeah. Shane. Um, yeah. I've been doing some work with Shane too, which has been fun. So yeah, he said, he said your second halves have been crushing. So. They've been doing all right. Um, they've been doing all right. I mean, they're just, they're like anything, just a lot of variants. And hopefully you get on the positive side of variants more often than not. Just sort of exactly. like my craps game. Um, okay. So what did you think of the Alabama game? Did that surprise you? You know, I didn't watch it, but certainly the result um, was a little bit surprising. I watched a lot of it and it was interesting because it didn't seem fluky, honestly, like Bama looked like they were, you know, Bryce young, like did not look like he had a lot of opportunities to do stuff. I still think he's obviously tremendous, but it was interesting. And then on defense, they definitely had trouble stopping LSU. So, um, 
I don't know. It'll be interesting. Do you think Al, like what percentage chance? I mean, we, we talked last week on this podcast about how we thought Alabama was good value potentially at, you know, plus whatever 300, you know, given the fact that they had a relatively easy path to still at least go to the sec championship and then one game basically to get into the CFP. And then at that point, anything can happen. Um, now do you think there's a, a reasonable path for them? So, I mean, that's a good question. It, it comes down to how you model the committee, but I, I would say that probably not. Um, we make, we make them 17% to make the playoff and they still have a chance to win the sec actually, because they have a, uh, you know, if they win out and LSU loses their last two games and LSU has, I mean, they have to play, um, two like tougher games. They have A&M in two weeks and Arkansas this week, I believe. So, and I mm -hmm. think they're only, they're only a three point favorite this week. So Alabama can still, you know, they have a 3% chance of still winning the sec. They do that. Obviously I think two loss Alabama winning the sec probably is in, but you know, it's, I think my number for them getting in without winning the sec is probably too high. What's your just, just due to the politics and all that stuff? I mean, just yeah. Um, what's your likely top four right now with all your simulations? So, in terms of probability mm -hmm. of so Georgia, 98.5 percent, mm -hmm. um, Ohio State, 93.5 percent, Tennessee, 79 percent, Oregon, 31 percent, and then Michigan, 29 percent. So, it's interesting. So basically we have three that are pretty settled at the top. What chance do you get Clemson? Give Clemson any chance? Uh, 20.7. Interesting. Their path obviously is they can still win the ACC pretty easily. Yeah, 68%. Um, you know, North Carolina um, only has one loss. Yeah. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, they've been they kind of under the radar. Yeah. Kate They're probably going to play Clemson in the, in the uh, ACC championship. I don't know if you've looked, you're not really following the Calcutta, but I was actually looking today because there's one cat or a couple of days ago, there's one category, which is team that wins the most games against FBS opponents. And, um, and it, and it includes conference championship games and bowl games, but not playoff games. So the teams that make the playoffs basically arguably Arguably, Georgia still, if they win out, still has a chance. What do you think the number is of wins that will probably win? I don't know. What is it? What do you think? It's Twelve. And it's and it's um, the teams that are like kind of still in the running are teams like Clemson. Liberty is actually still in the running, even though they don't get a conference championship game. If they win their, if they win out, which they are favored to do, and then win their bowl game, they'll be at twelve. Clemson, Clemson, if they win out and don't make the CFP and get a bowl game, we'll have 12. Georgia, if they win out, even with the college football playoffs, not getting a bowl game, we'll have 12 wins. So interesting. interesting. Kate, Kate asked me a few questions this morning that he wanted, I think, for for his show um, for Wharton Moneyball, I'm, I'm assuming. But he asked for the probability the Pac-12 champion finishes with one loss, and that's 60.5%. That's mostly going to be Oregon, but or UCLA. Yeah, I mean, or Brad USC McMurphy, technically, Brad, Brad but Oregon. McMurphy I have Oregon as the big favorite here, just given. I mean, given they're basically, I mean, they're they're a better team than the other teams, and they have the easiest path because they're 
yeah, at the moment. Well, Brett I McMurphy, US, I don't yeah. know if you saw, predicts that USC, uh, sorry, that UCLA will be in the CFP. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, they have, they have a path if they, uh, potentially, if they run if the table. Out. Yeah. But, um, so then he wanted the, uh, the probability that TCU runs the table. You want you want to guess what that is, Jeff? Undefeated TCU. Cause that's basically probably the only chance the big 12 like gets a five, team in like 5%, 4.02%. It's yeah. very low. Yeah. We have actually, okay, come Texas. on. That was pretty good. Off that was very good. That was yeah. very good. We have Texas actually is very likely to win the big 12. I mean, by very likely, I mean, uh, like 40%, 41%, um, it's it's kind of chaos behind the you know under under TCU. I mean, Texas can actually still lose again, and actually, they, there's a theoretical world where they can lose twice and still make the um, Big Twelve championship game. That's only zero point zero four percent. But um, the chance UNC runs the table. What do you think that is? Hmm. Runs the table and wins the conference championship. Ten percent. Twelve point one percent. Very very close. Yeah. Good job again. Okay. Pretty good at this game. And then last, um, Ole Miss running the table and LSE running the table. Ole Miss is probably nine. I'd say like less than 10. Ole Miss running the table, 0.1%. Oh, okay. I mean, I'm bad. Well, no, because they, I mean, that's running the table and winning the SEC championship. Oh, and winning the SEC. Yeah, yeah. So other things have to happen. So they have um, to beat Alabama, they have to beat somebody else, and then they have to beat Georgia. And LSU, I don't know, 5%? 6.4%. So that's that's real close. Yeah. yeah. And Alabama can run and is 3%, 3.25% to run the table and, and win the SEC, which requires them winning the rest of their games. Well, I, I guess technically they don't have to beat Austin P, but um, they will. And then LSU losing to Arkansas and AM. So it's interesting that like we we think that Alabama's completely done, but there still is like a you know, LSU has two difficult games left. Um they're not like L- LSU is not Georgia, you know. Yeah. They could lose both those games. Let's a segue. I think it's a good segue to get into my most tilted moment of the week. So I um I bet on Georgia in that game. And I think we know that I'm pretty invested in Georgia as I always am. So was feeling pretty good about my position. And we had really good, we had a really good second half um, on those like, you know, 9 a.m. and then 12 o'clock games. And so going into that Bama game, I was like, oh, I, I had nothing in the Bama game, but I was like, oh, I'd like to, you know, I was like watching it with a buddy. I was like, I'd like to get something in here. And so Alabama, I don't, you didn't watch the game, but Alabama looked amazing on in the first like five minutes of the game. They, I think they stopped LSU and then they went like right down the field against uh, LSU. And I was thinking to myself like, man, this is going to be a blowout. Right. And so then Bryce Young throws like kind of a silly interception at the goal line. So they don't end up scoring. And I'm like, Oh, it's a good chance for me to get some, you know, position in game. So I took a little, you know, minus 11. And then I took a little, like uh, money line because I'm like, oh, they're definitely not going to lose, and then ended up obviously losing both for in just like total stupidity, right? Like total degen move, and it was like one of those moments where I'm like, 
yeah, you're an idiot. You and money should never be partners because you're, you're an idiot. And so that was my tilted moment. What was your tilted moment? And it was all self, it was all self-inflicted. So I won't blame nobody but myself. My, my tilted moments were not self-inflicted as much. I'd say there's two. There was the Boise State BYU game. We bet the total on, Mm -hmm. we had under 55 and a half and under 56. Uh, the game was seven to seven at the half. Um, it ended at 59. There were 45 points scored in the second half, um, yeah. including 28 scored in the fourth quarter. So that was, and there was a fourth down conversion um, at the very end that, you know, fourth and goal that, which it was kind of, they had to go to instant replay review on it, but that, um, that if they hadn't converted, it still, the under still would have won. And then the other one was just, we had a really bad round three for golf betting. I just remember looking because we our tournament matchups were up like maybe 15 strokes or something um, with, I don't know how many were left to be decided, like nine of them. And after round two, and then I literally looked through and I was like, the bottom of the leaderboard was like littered with guys that we had tournament matchups on. All our guys went like plus three and all the guys we went bet against went like six under. And so we went from being 15 strokes up to 40 strokes down That's in a hurry. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, we're going to have a soccer guest on this week. We're having Jimmy Conrad on. And I thought before we had him on, it might be good for you and I to talk a little bit about the Calcutta and how we're going to structure that. Are you going to, what are you going to do? Are you going to just do the Calcutta blindly? Are you going to try to partner with someone? Like, what are you going to do for world cup? Um, model it yourself. Well, I'll, I'll use publicly available stuff. I'm not going to, I'm not going to create my own model, but I mean, just like I do for NCAA tournament and stuff like that. Got it. So you will do one. Okay. So I'm not just going to go blindly and and guess like I did for college football this year. So, so here's what I have so far. Um, I have the champion getting paid like about 14% second, about 10% third, about 7% and fourth about 5%. And then I have advancing in your group first as another 3% advancing in your group second another two percent and then <laughs> i have a lot of the junk bets. how many groups are there eight there's eight groups yeah okay so that's 40 percent right there so we're up to 76 percent. is that right yes 76 percent is accounted for and then the junk bets right now i have most goals allowed in one game fewest goals scored total i think there probably be well there's gonna be a bunch a- of teams tied with that yeah. yeah. Most a goals scored in shootouts. In team... shootouts. So wait, wait. The in in an So if a team is in a shootout and it's just the literally the number of goals they scored in the shootouts combined. Yeah. So that's only So gonna, getting into a shootout. You're only going to ever get into a shootout in in sort of well, in after the group stage. Right. So you'll only ever be in I guess you could be in two shootouts, right? At the not in the knockout stage, yeah, you could be in you could be in four shootouts, right? Yeah, I'm guessing you only see one, but okay. okay. Well, we can okay. throw that one out there. No, no team yep. team with player awarded golden boot. Got to have the golden boot. Team to advance with fewest goals. I like that one. Advance to the group stage with fewest mm-hmm. goals. To the to the um, beyond sorry. the group stage. Yeah, sorry. Team with player awarded golden glove. Okay. Team to advance with lowest FIFA ranking. 
Ooh. Okay. Team with longest distance goal. Ooh. And I got these off of like some of the Twitter suggestions we got were really good. Longest distance goal. Okay. Team with most goals scored that doesn't advance. So we have the fewest goals that does advance and the most goals that doesn't advance. Yeah. So that's what I have right now. Let me look quickly about some of the other ones. That's a lot. Um, what's your, I mean, that's one, two, three, four, five. Some six, of like the other ones that I've heard that were interesting so. were teams with a number of different goal scorers. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, num- like number of cards. The problem with any of like the aggregate ones is that it favors the better teams. And with the junk bets, you want to give like the crappy teams a chance so they have some value. That's what I think. Yeah. Anywho. I agree. Um, so that's it. So we're going to have uh, Jimmy Conrad on talking through some soccer stuff. Um, and then we'll join you guys on the other side. We now welcome in Jimmy Conrad, who is a legitimate person who knows something about soccer well first of all before we start talking about this should we call it soccer or football which which is like more <laughs> appropriate for the rest of this uh podcast i'm still buzzing you called me legitimate so okay i'm just happy about that oh uh, because i grew up here in the states i i call it soccer now if you have a community that uh likes to be cool and wants to call it football that that's fine too so i, I can easily flip back Jim, and forth jimmy we have a community of seven listeners so <laughs> i think they'll be fine with whatever we call yeah, it. yeah okay all right wait, wait, usually usually to stay right on the fence i call it the beautiful game and it's just nice and safe what if you called it european soccer would that be weird or european football like what yeah, like you know how yeah. everyone calls it american football it's like what if we called it european something i or I, I would subscribe to that yeah i like that all right for our seven listeners can you please tell <laughs> us a little bit about who you are and what makes you an authority to be a legitimate, uh, you know, sort of, uh, sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I am an Aquarius. I like long walks on the beach. I once pulled five strikes in a row. Also That's... an Aquarius, January 23rd. There we go. On February 12th, me and yeah, there you go. Charles Darwin and Abraham Lincoln. Let's party. So I grew up in Southern California. I fell in love with the beautiful game very early on. My grandfather was from Denmark and he just kicked the ball with me all the time. And I think what I picked up from him was just this enthusiasm and passion for the game. I mean, he lit up when he would go play, when he would talk about it in a way that not he wouldn't, he would never give my grandma that type of shine or even his own kids. Right. But when he talked about the game, he just became somebody else in a way that I had never seen. And so I think it was pretty, you know, a lot, a lot of nonverbal cues that you're picking up from him as a kid. And so it started there and I got to play locally. And thankfully, as I developed and, and became older, I was around some good coaches as a, as a youth player and in high school. But then I uh, didn't get, didn't get re- heavily recruited because there are a lot of kids in Southern California that are very good. And I had to walk on, I ended up walking on at UCLA, which was my dream school. There was no professional league to aspire to at that point. And uh, we won the national championship my senior year, which was amazing. And I thought, I'm going to get drafted to MLS because MLS had just started. And I was the only senior that didn't get drafted. So I'm like, all right, here we go again. So I started from the bottom, played in the lower leagues, worked my way up, played a year in the lower leagues, was great for me. And little engine, uh, little engine that could my way up the ladder. I did four years in San Jose, won an MLS cup, got traded, 
to Kansas City and blew up there. I had eight years there, six-time MLS All-Star, MLS Defender of the Year. Uh, I played for my national team in the World Cup in 2006. I got to be captain five or six times, which was a huge thing for uh, a little walk-on kid from Temple City, California. And yeah, I uh, had a 12-year career. I retired, and now I do media stuff. So I'm an analyst for CBS Sports currently and their Champions League and Europa League and Serie A and WSL coverage. I am on the precipice of going to Qatar with Fox Sports for the next 30 days to talk about the beautiful game and to have fun doing it. And so I am in some ways living the dream. But I do think that all this experience does help me feel a little bit credible in the space. Also, I'm working on my coaching licenses. So I'm working on my A license here with U.S. Soccer. So I'd like to think I've got it a little bit covered in, in a lot of different ways. And so if, if people want to come, you know, I tackled I Essentially, if anybody wants to come at me, and I do have some you know, more comedic takes than always the serious ones. But I did tackle Leo Messi once in a game. And until I see somebody else giving me any stick or unless they've done that, you know, I think I'm one and them zero. That's kind of how I see it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that that World Cup experience you have is pretty legit, right? Like you guys tied Italy. That's right. And I remember that game against Ghana as the game that made me understand why all these people around the world like mm -hmm. soccer mm -hmm. because that game was fucking terrible <laughs> for so long and i was wanting as a fan i had never cared about a soccer game that much in my life and i was basically like through most of that game like this game sucks this is the worst game. why am i ever going to watch soccer again and then the minute you guys scored that goal to tie it i was just happy and that juxtaposition of my feelings <laughs> of like sadness and happiness, you can't replicate that in any other sport. And that was like a moment where I was like, and this is from a person that really doesn't understand the game well enough to like, see what's beautiful. This is just from a pure rooting standpoint. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that you needed to hear that story to validate what you guys did, but that was an amazing world cup uh, performance. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, Anytime you get to a chance to play at the highest level and really see what you're about individually and collectively, it's it's a big thrill uh, as a player. And and I'll, and I'll say this: being on the field for these games, the national anthem hits different when you're in a World Cup because you know at that particular moment, everybody at home has your back, and that is something that's very hard to replicate in any other in the Olympics, of course. I would say a World Cup, but anything else, there's always somebody in at home rooting against you for whatever reason. And, and uh, it's a really special thing. And I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, this current generation of players can continue to push, push us to greater heights. So let's jump in a little bit to just the American soccer situation, given the fact that we're going to the world cup and whatnot, mm -hmm. you know, are, are we as a country headed in the right direction? Obviously disappointing that we weren't in the last world cup. And now here we are. Um, do you think we're headed in the right direction and sort of like, what's the outlook that you think for the U S given going into the world cup? I believe that we are just scratching the surface of a new golden generation for our players. We obviously have some hard evidence that we have Americans playing at some of the biggest clubs in the world. And not only that being meaningful contributors, winning champions league trophies, and that's all really important. Not only is it important for the current players, but it's also inspiring the next generation to try to push on and do the same, if not better. And I think that's really encouraging. It's exciting for me to see 
that these guys, and I hope that they were 10 times the player I ever was. That's, that's my hope. And I feel like we finally have an infrastructure here in this country that is maturing and evolving in a way that will allow us to continue to produce world-class players. Right now we have a crop of them that exists. And now I just think you start to, it starts to hit exponentially. We're going to just start developing. And this is on both the men and the women's side. I mean, we've obviously been flexing on the women's side for quite some time. And, and now the rest of the world is starting to catch up. It's going to be a little bit harder on, on our women's side to maintain that type of success that we've had. And that's only a good thing. It's going to push us on that side as well. But as it, re, as it pertains to the men, the farthest we've ever gone in a world cup is a quarterfinal that happened in 2002. And we had a little good, we had some good fortune in that one. It's the finest of margins at the highest levels. And, and hopefully those fine margins go our way. But when I think about this world cup, and I think about what success means, I would say getting out of the group. It's it's on paper, a manageable group. Wales on paper, we should be competitive and I would hope drive the game and be more of the protagonist than a reactive performance. I think against England, it'll be a little bit more reactive, but I think we almost play better in those situations because we're the underdogs. England are the clear favorites. They have all the pressure on them. We have nothing to lose. And I bet you, you'll see our group of players playing a little bit more free in that game, as opposed to the other ones where they're expected to win. And then we have Iran in the last game, which I think it'll actually come down to that as to whether we're going to get out of the group or not. Ultimately for me, we, we're going to have the youngest team at the World Cup. We have the youngest team that qualified for the World Cup. And because we're hosting the 2026 World Cup, it's really important for these this group of players to get that type of experience, to push us on, to perform really well when we are hosting it and at home in front of our home fans. Jimmy, can Just I said, ask, um, sorry, Jeff, can I ask how the infrastructure in the United States has changed over the sure. last like 20 years? Because I, I feel like for the last 20 years, I've been hearing this, like the US needs to build better <laughs> infrastructure. Like I played, I played soccer growing up all the way through like eighth grade. And actually, I think I probably have more refereeing experience than anybody here. I was a youth soccer referee for for six years, actually. Um, but it's like, it's like everybody plays soccer. Jimmy, least, in case you didn't know, Rufus specializes in non sequiturs. So go on. Yeah. No, I love that. Keep everybody, going. everybody, like everybody plays soccer growing up, um, or at least not everybody, but, but I guess where I was raised, everybody did. And, and then go on to other sports, it feels like. So what's, I guess, how, how, how have things changed and how are things changing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I appreciate you being a referee right now. If I speak about the current situation, there is a void of referees. There's just so many refs. You can't pay them enough to just get absolutely oh. harassed by parents. A oh, game in and game it. out. I loved it. Like I loved essentially being in charge and having these grownups be able to do nothing. Like they would yell at <laughs> Good, me. Good, that's be a like, selling point. Like, we need to get oh, as many. I love, I mean, that I should be the, the selling point. Oh man, it was fantastic. Yeah. So so if anybody's interested of your seven listeners that want to be a referee, I uh, highly recommend it. Or if they know anybody, because we need to get that developed as well. And I'll say very just to follow this non sequitur, what and why referees are so important is because they, as to to what Rufus said. They control the flow of the game. They control the rhythm of the game. They, they control how much they're going to let go and how much they're going to bring it in. And that really sets the tone for how the game's going to go. And I can't emphasize how important that is. All right. But back to the infrastructure. What's happening now is that there's some visibility. 20 years ago, yeah, MLS had started. I, was, I had just started in it in, in as well. But there were only in 10 markets at that time. Now you're almost up to 30 teams. There's a real thirst to have an MLS team in market. You also have a second division and USL championship that's starting to be in the markets that MLS isn't or can't be at the current time. Maybe the 
the the population is too small for whatever whatever the the checklist is for mls to, to get an expansion team it's just not happening yeah, but they can't get promoted we that's don't true have promotion and rele relegation right right and that's because mls was built by former nfl guys and they built the model lamar hunt rest in peace who is my owner in kansas city for a long time really sweetheart of a man except but he tried to move you to texas he did he tried to move us to san antonio and uh and it didn't work out. And thankfully, the team got to stay in Kansas City, which is an incredible market. And I'm thrilled that they became one of the World Cup host cities for 2026. But what you're also seeing with regard to that, so you create these this first division with MLS. And for the longest time in the league, you, you just had to be, you had to be in the first 18. That was it. That's the only way you can make the team. You have to be one of the best 18 players. So there's 10 teams, you got 180 players. And it's just not enough. The infrastructure is not there. Where's your youth academy? Where's your second team? Where's all these things that you need to give these kids an opportunity that are coming up to grow, to be seen, to, to not necessarily be on this rocket ship. You're going to get one kid, maybe a Landon Donovan, who's just going to be insane at 16 or 17. And okay, good. We're going to bring him in. We're going to play him and he's going to do his thing. But there's a lot of kids like me. I didn't, I didn't get my first cap with the national team until I was 28. So what happens to those kids that maybe develop at a, at a different rate than the ones that are just tremendously gifted at 15, 16, 17? They need room to grow as well. And now, yeah, of course, we could talk about the college environment, but that's now an, not, a, not as big of an option, the only way to, to be seen. And I think that's really important. So, so everything now is there's been this trickle down. There's been more investment in the game. And, and now every, every MLS team has a youth academy that I believe starts at under 12. So now you have the Philadelphia unions of the world who are developing, let's Brendan Aronson. I'll use him as an example. He develops in the Philadelphia union Academy. He plays with the Philadelphia union first team for, I don't know, 18 months, two years. And then he gets sold to RB Salzburg. RB Salzburg just sells him to leads to the premier league for 30 million. And, and now he's holding his own against some of the best in the world week in and week out. And that's awesome, right? So he's one success story. But imagine if everything else starts to mature in that same type of way. FC Dallas is another academy that's gotten five or six guys over into Europe. And Weston McKinney is one that plays for Juventus in Serie A in Italy. So there's all these examples now of this happening. And once one owner who's putting the money in recognizes that they can start developing players and sell, selling them for 10, like Ricardo Pepe just left FC Dallas for 20 million to the Bundesliga. Now you're going to see, oh, I see how this whole thing works. And honestly, once MLS in the last five years said, we're going to be a selling league, then that changed everything. And now these other leagues are starting to look at our players in a more meaningful way, knowing that the league will sell them. Whereas before that, we were very protective of our product because we just didn't have a lot of it. And it was diluting the talent pool if we sold too many of our players, but that's changing. And that's a great thing. So there's a lot to, to go further down if you want, but our scouting's gotten better. Our coaching's getting better, right? All the former players that are my age are now trickling back into the system. And that's all just leveling up everything because we can give these experiences back to the kids and continue to pay it forward. So quick question on this. And you mentioned this, and I, I mentioned this question because um, I coached in the um, United States water polo program mm -hmm. up at a pretty high level. And one of the things, Rako Rudic, who was like a legendary coach that took over the US, he came over from Croatia and Hungary, blah, blah, blah. He used to always just complain about college and how college was like the biggest reason that the U.S. could never compete at the highest level of water polo because the NCAA. Do you feel that same way about soccer? A little bit. I think that that was a at first a vehicle to find talent and then ultimately has become an obstacle because the season is so short. So I don't and know. Then if there's all these regulations about yeah, how much they can play. And exactly. 
and, and it, I think it handcuffs the players from really, especially as you know, really formidable years. We're talking 18 to 21. Those are very, very important years for these guys to be touching the ball every single day under pressure. Okay. So you have a three, four month season. And then what do they do in the rest of what are they, the other eight months? What are they doing? They're, that's it's just really unfair to the players and for the NCAA to not be at least open to other opportunities. And I, I know that they're looking at different ways to change the season that you'd play like a first half over those three or first three or four months. And then you'd have a second half in the springtime, which I would really love. And I think everybody would love and the players would benefit from that, especially ones that have professional aspirations. So I don't know it, they're trying to move, you know, the NCAA is very glacial in, in how they're, they're turning and trying to be open to things. And I'm sure they're trying to put out a lot of fires with all the NIL deals as well. So uh, I don't think soccer is probably top of the list, but it definitely de- needs to be looked at. However, with this youth academy stuff, a lot of the kids that are act- incredibly talented aren't even thinking about college anymore. But the ones that are like that second tier, that are, let's call them tier two kids that maybe wouldn't play for the first team at 17, 18, 19, they're having meaningful conversations with their parents or whatever it is and what they want to do with their lives. And, and most of them, I wouldn't say most, but a good majority of them are going to, to college. I will say this from my own college experience. When I look at the 17 and 18 year olds that are playing around the world, in, in high, I, don't, I just don't know if I was capable of, of managing that type of pressure and expectations. I don't think as a human being, I was ready. And, and that four years in college was an incredible stepping stone for me to develop as a human and to learn how to cope with adversity and manage that type of stuff, which doesn't get talked about a lot. Usually when you're talking about producing players, you're talking tactical, technical, and physical. The last thing that I think scouts are looking at is the mental side of the game. And how do they respond to to mistakes? How do, what are the the intangibles, leadership? And and what are they doing to raise the game of the players around them, no matter what the sport is? So, So that mental side is still a component that doesn't feel taboo. I think it's out there and people know that they need to discuss it, but it always feels like the other three are first. When I think the biggest determinant of whether they're going to be successful or not is probably the mental side. So, so that's a good segue into Rufus. Uh, Rufus, why don't you go ahead and ask yeah, some yeah. of your questions around the analytics piece? Oh, no, I was going to segue into more about development, but more about developing a national team and how mm-hmm. different it is from or club soccer or club, beautiful game, whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it. And, mm-hmm. And it feels like, um, I mean, the, the unique, there, there are certainly unique challenges there because you have a bunch of players that haven't played together. And I, I would assume um, a manager is a lot more important there. And sort of how do, like, how do you go about sort of building this, you know, the, building a cohesive national team? And I guess even more like, why are, are, are there reasons that some countries are typically better than that than others? Yes, that's a great question. I'll go micro first and say that I loved playing for my national team. I thought it was in some ways easier. Now who we were playing against, not always easier, but playing for the team was easier because everybody was so good at their job. I didn't have to wear more than any other hat than the hat that I was supposed to wear. And when you're the coach of a national team, you just want to put your players in the best position to succeed. Brevity is an art form, less is more. They're going to figure it out. You can tell players at the national team level one little note and they got it. There's no big giant explanation. And that's what I loved about it because you're dealing with that type of quality of player and understanding of the game. The IQs for the game are, are off the charts. And so there's not a lot of handholding at that particular level. Yeah, but what, I love about that. So, what about someone who's coming from like the premier league and they have, you know, they, 
have a stack team and then they're going to, I don't know, play for sure a, a, a national team that isn't as good. No, no, I, I guess we could use Christian Pulisic as an example, plays for Chelsea, the Champions League winner, where he is one of many for Chelsea. And then when he comes for the US, he is our guy. What I love is that when Christian Pulisic got hurt during World Cup qualifying over the last I don't know, eight or nine months ago, he wasn't, he wasn't available. We had to have other players step up. It was really refreshing to see our team respond to that challenge in a positive way. And now other players have emerged. We, we have the Timothy Wea who's playing for Lille in France, who, who stepped up and, and scored some pivotal goals for us. We have Brendan Aronson, who I mentioned before, who is, could kind of, they're almost, they're not like for like players, Aronson and Pulisic, but they both like to get the ball and run at the opposing defenses. So we have someone that's very similar in terms of our makeup as a team. And then you have a Gio Reyna who got to step up and take on some more responsibility and be a little bit more of our attacking talisman. And, and that was great because now when Christian came back, he didn't feel that, that burden per se to have to be the guy every single time he put on the shirt. I still think he carries that because of all the hype that's around him, but I understand your point. And yes, there's going to be a couple of guys that are outliers with regard to their responsibilities and, and maybe their club team is better than their national team. But overall, he's coming from an environment where he's got a lot of guys that are very similar. They're all their national teams for his club team at Chelsea. And you're going to get a high IQ. You don't have to say things once. And he's going to come into an environment that's very similar. Now, he might run into a situation with the U.S., Christian Pulisic, where the execution of these ideas isn't as high as it is at Chelsea or as consistent, right? I think we have players that can do it. But is that, is it as consistent as Chelsea? Probably not, though this current version of Chelsea, not necessarily firing on all cylinders, scoring a bunch of goals. So, yeah, I guess it kind of depends on the on the macro side of things. We have a very unique situation here in this particular country because. We have a lot of people and our country is very big, so when we get or when we get compared to a Germany or a Belgium, I know that we had I know U.S. soccer was talking to this this Belgian consulting firm that specialized in building players, building a program and all that stuff. Yeah, good luck. Belgium's like 8 million people and we have 330 million. If you go on the East Coast in New York, you're going to get a completely different philosophy about how the game should be played than you are going to get in Southern California, which has more of a Latin influence. Whereas the East Coast feels more European-centric, UK-centric. And they're just, they're just contrasting philosophies. So if you try to get all these people into a room to talk about how the game should be played, it's just hard because everybody kind of sees it in different ways and everybody's stubborn. They're trying to protect their own ideologies and, and it's not a lot of fun, I assume for, for a lot of people. So that, that is a little bit unique. Whereas if you have a smaller country, I think it's a lot easier to not only get your national team rowing a boat in the same direction, but also your local club teams and say, cause what, what happened was when Germany got knocked out, I think they didn't qualify. They got knocked out of the euros, I think in 2000. And that was signaling the end of a certain generation of German players. And it was like an embarrassing knockout. So in 2000, there was, if I'm not mistaken, there was a, a meeting with the FA, the Football Association of Germany, or Fußball, as I should say, and, and all of their clubs in the Bundesliga, like, how can we rectify this? What are we doing to help make sure that the German player has room to play and that we're not just necessarily giving those responsibilities to top foreign players that are coming into the league? How can we find that balance? And so there's more of an emphasis there and all the clubs were on board and started to work towards that. 14 years later, they won a world cup with, with that younger generation that, that came through. So I don't know. I, I think that 
that's possible. And Germany's obviously laid a blueprint for that to happen. I just think that's harder here. And, and I don't think there's this one hit a switch philosophy that's going to solve all of that. And I think U.S. soccer runs into those issues quite a bit, which, which then speaks to your stuff, uh, what you were saying with regard to uh, the manager having such a pivotal role of not only bringing in players that understand and get it, but also almost treating it like a club team, which is what current manager Greg Berhalter is doing right now, which I actually think works against him because I think he's trying to get too specific when the players just need a framework and then they'll play within that framework. Okay. So let's, let's move on to a little bit of, of actual like gambling and analytics talk, which Ooh, is what I love this that. podcast is known yes. for. So one, have you, is this an area that you're familiar with? I assume that if you've been in soccer for a while, like especially overseas, there's just a ton of gambling within that world, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I am part of a wagering analyst crew for CBS. So sometimes I hop on sports line and chime in with a few of my top bets. I'm not afraid of a little parlay parte every once in a while. You know what, you know what I'm saying? What, um, when you think about soccer in terms of ways to, understand how to use analytics or data to find an edge where where do you think like at a very basic level like right now if you were going to try to walk rufus who really knows very little about soccer hey i through... own a soccer analytics company <laughs> okay fine fine whatever true. dude so yeah. if you were going to do this right like actually what's funny is rufus i'm on the board of a soccer data company and rufus is on um, i'm an investor and rufus and, and, it... rufus and i are both owners of a uh, English soccer team, League Two. Of Which course. one? Crawley Town. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Well so, done, guys. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so we're not doing... Did we win today? Anyone know if we won today? I should know that. Interesting. I looked. Um, you, what, it's Carabao Cup? No, it was a care. No, I don't think it was Carabao Cup. But I think it was a league FA game today. Was... We did beat Fulham in Caribou Cup, though, That was, which was pretty cool. Got it. Crawley Law is losing to Burnley 2-1 right now in the Carabao uh, Cup. That is the Carabao Cup. God yep. damn it. Oh, I guess that doesn't really matter. We need to win league games. Um, <laughs> so, We've been doing too well in cups and not well enough. In yeah, exactly. Games. So so where, where would you tell us to start in terms of trying to understand how to beat the market in, in uh, betting uh, soccer? Well, in some ways, you got to do a little bit of research on potentially the history of the club. There are certain clubs, if you're trying to bet the big ones, that have to play a certain way. That's what the fans demand. I'll use Barcelona as an example. The tiki-taka is how they've been stereotyped in some ways where it's just, I get it, play it, move. There's just a rhythm that they're trying to establish. And sometimes they'll possess teams to death. They'll have 85% possession, but still lose one zero because they're not really going anywhere with it. But, but overall, that's that the fans demand that of their team. So you want to do a little bit of research and kind of knowing the, the overall philosophy of a club. That's one. Second, I would... I would do some research on the manager that's in charge because there are managers, Jose Mourinho, Antonio Conte, that are defense first and not as pleasing aesthetically to their attack. And that those are hard games to watch sometimes, not always, sometimes. And, and so I would try to find out what kind of managers they are and and what their philosophy I don't think it's very hard I think you could probably find on Wikipedia the ideologies of any top manager so so having an understanding of how a club should play and how a manager likes to play and what kind of success he's had in the past is really important now I'm probably asking you to do too much research at this point but if you really want to find those edges you do have to take a little bit of a dive into that space and then I would just look at their last five to ten games 
how are they doing? Is it is it club competition versus are they playing in Europe and European competitions? Are they playing in the cup? Look who's starting. Look at the formations. I mean, I'm getting into the weeds here, but I think you have to if you're trying to find that great, great value. For instance, Bayern Munich in Germany, they've won the Bundesliga 10 straight years. It's not even fun anymore, I don't think, for any of the other teams. It's like a fight for second. But there's a great bet where today, and they've hit this bet a lot, where over, over one and a half total goals in the first half of a Bayern Munich game, over 1.5 is plus 120. And... They, they scored four goals in the first half. It's just insane. And they consistently come out and it's part of their philosophy. Bayern Munich are the class of Bundesliga. They have a manager that's very attack minded. They want to put teams under the sword as soon as possible. They don't want any teams hanging around and they go after it from the first minute. That's a really good bet. And that bet hits a lot. So it's these little tiny trends that you have to see and find that I think make a big difference. So would that be an example of a, a, I guess I consider like first halves bets and other sports to be like derivative bets. They should be priced based on the full game. But what you're saying is that there's sort of a unique, something unique to the way they play that would make that first half priced differently relative to the full game. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And I think that Bayern Munich, because they have a coach who emphasizes trying to kill the game as soon as possible and trying to, you know, sub make the other team suffer and kill their spirit as soon as possible. That, that, makes a lot of sense now you got to look at the opponent look at the value of course but they just they four one in the first half they're just rolling over teams also there was a bet that i played i had thomas Tuchel when thomas tuchel was at chelsea that guy is a defensive mastermind and when he took over chelsea and ended up leading them to the champions league he took over for frank lampard midway through the season right before the knockout rounds of the champions league there were eight games i think seven or eight games that he that he managed throughout that phase when they won it and seven of those eight or six out of seven were Chelsea win and under two and a half goals. And I was just bang hit plus two fifty, plus 300. Then the bookies obviously got a little smart and he had to drop down to like plus two ten, plus one eighty to get there. But, but he kept hitting it consistently because his team knew exactly who they were. They knew what the identity was. And you just, I'm honestly, I was printing money for a little while. Now it's just a matter of how much I wanted to wager at that point. I mean, I'm, I never get away from like five or $10 cause it's more about pride than anything else. But, but if I wanted to go and swing big, those those were the trends that I was looking at. And it was, there was so much consistency in how Thomas Tuchel was managing his players. They got the one goal they needed. They sat back and they killed the game off. And they weren't looking. They were never looking for that second goal. They were only looking for that first one. So turning to analytics just a little bit briefly. Um, so XG is now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of pervasive in, in soccer. Everybody's talking about, oh, you know, the score is 3-1, but this team, you know, mm-hmm. lost, you know, 1.3 to 1.1 in XG. Um I feel like, well, Hey, there's some limitations to that obviously, because it only measures shots and there's a lot of great opportunities that don't lead to shots. I guess, how do you feel about XG and and do you, what do you think is going to be sort of the next frontier in sort of how people talk about analytics and soccer? Yeah, that's a great question. How do you value the other actions besides shots? Yeah. I would say that if you're looking at like statistics post game and you want to understand you're doing some research on what they were doing over the last five games. I would look at XG. Cause that means they're in and around the goal. They're creating opportunities. I'd also look at corner kicks. If you have a decent XG, but you only have two corner kicks for the game. I don't know if you're in as much of the attacking third as you'd like to be. Now, if you go see a game and I, you see like 15 corner kicks, that means they're getting, if there's 15 corner kicks, and the team gets that over a game, that means they're getting down to the end line. They're trying to get crosses off. 
And the other team is doing last, last ditch defending to try to clear the ball out no matter what. Or you're getting good chances on goal and the goalkeeper's making saves. It's a real good indicator of what's happening. So I would look at where they're getting their free kicks, where they're getting their corner kicks. And, and, and then XG for me is a complement to these other ones. They all kind of complement each other. So I would also look at chances created in, in, the, in the attacking third and where those chances are created. Because if it, if it, you can see a lot of teams are, we're going to go and play it wide and we're going to whip balls in. We're just going to cross to whoever it is, our big number nine up top, and, and he's good at thumping them in or whatever it is. Cool. You're going to do that? Great. So I know that if I, if I have any statistics to reference, I know that, okay, 20% of the time he gets his head on something. Does he score? Maybe 5% of the time he scores if the cross comes in these particular areas. Now, what, what's going to happen is as you get further and further into a season, this has to be taken into consideration as well, teams are going to figure it out. Okay, the first time you play him, all right, we don't really know much about you. Maybe you just got promoted. But that second time, it's going to be a lot harder for you to get those same type of crosses because they have – 25, 30 games of documentation of how to slow you down and other teams that have had success against you by laying the blueprint of how to, how to negate what you're very good at. So all these things have to be taken into consideration. And, and I think that's where the emotion of betting comes in, in terms of when you get later in the season, the emotion of the players also, they're tired. They've played so many games over the course of the year. They get a little looser, maybe not as disciplined as they were earlier on. And, and that there's some good value to be found there too, as the seasons get, uh, you know, eight, eight or nine months in. All right. So segueing into our last subject, which is around the world cup, mm-hmm. specifically, we do a Calcutta every, uh, we do Calcutta's here for like big events, which are these big betting pools. And so essentially you auction off every team. There's a bunch of different categories that teams get uh, dollars for. And we'll do this among some of the biggest sports bettors in the world. We'll be doing this. And so would love to kind of get some insight for you on some of the categories, things like who, who you think are dark horses to advance potentially, who do you think is likely to get the golden boot or the golden glove? Like who are some of those kind of, you know, insights that you can give our seven listeners and make this worth their time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you want to start, as for the champion and then reverse engineer that, but I like Brazil. They haven't won a world cup since 2002. They're absolutely stacked in every single position. They're two or three deep in every position, like world-class players. Like their second, their second team could probably make a semifinal run. That, that's how good Brazil is. Now with their manager, Chiche, he's got a big task at hand. You have all these talented players, but what can you find the right mix? that's actually going to have you, have success. They went undefeated in qualifying, which is very hard to do in South America. In the Copa America, which is the Euros of, of South America, they lost in the final 1-0 to Argentina. And that was a pretty close game. They had a shutoff in two areas of the field or one area, but their outside backs are their weakest links. They have 37-year-old Danny Alves coming. And Danny Alves probably won't play, but he's got to be there for the vibes. He's like a total vibes guy, but he's won more trophies than any other human on the men's side of the game. And I understand why he got brought in. His experience, his, his he's he's, a, he's an intangibles guy. And, and if he did get to play, he's very steady. He knows he's played in way so many, uh, too many games. So, but those areas are a little bit weak. And I think that's where Argentina took advantage. If they run into a team, Brazil, that has good wingers out wide, that could be a place where they could get stung. So something to keep in mind if you wanted to pull an upset as Brazil 
storms through this tournament if they run into an opponent that's very good at that. I would love to see Brazil, Argentina in the final, but Brazil, I believe, is plus 400. And four to one's pretty good value for a team that is as good and as talented as Brazil. Argentina can't sleep on Leo Messi. He's he's playing unbelievably right now for PSG and for his country. They just won the Copa America, as I mentioned, his first major trophy with his country. So he's gotten that pressure off his back of being uh, considered the greatest, but had never won anything of consequence with his country. And he's got that done. And I think he can relax and play. And he's got a great supporting staff around him now that gives him that option to do so and the belief that they can win something as they did the previous summer. They are plus 550. They're the two top. Now, France is third. I'd stay away from France. They have Paul Pogba, who's out, and Golo Conte, who's out. Those guys are leaders in different ways in the middle of the field. It's very hard to win a World Cup and then win it again. We saw with Germany, won it in 2014, didn't get out of the group stages in 2018. We saw France win it in 1998 and couldn't get out of the group stages in 2002. There's plenty of examples. Spain won it in 2010, didn't get out of the group stages in 2014. It's just very hard to do no matter how big your talent is. And I don't think they're going to get knocked out of the groups, but I just don't know if they're going to make a run. I would put my money elsewhere on that, even though they're plus 600. I don't believe England will do it at eight to one either. Uh, I know they were semifinalists in the 18 World Cup and they got to the final of the Euro. So the natural progression is for them to win it. I just don't know if they can. I think they're going to run into somebody, hopefully the U.S. in the group stages as we stomp on them, boys. But we'll have to wait and see. And then from there, you got Spain, you got Germany. They got some players. I don't know if they have enough to, to see it out and to win seven games or, or to win the ones that matter to win the World Cup. I think Brazil and Argentina are the heavy favorites. And Brazil have won more World Cups than anybody else, but haven't won in 20 years. It seems like they're due and they've got the talent to back it up. So I'd start there. In terms of dark horses... Yeah, Spain is interesting. Germany's interesting. Belgium, this is the, probably the end of their golden generation, plus 1,400 for them. Netherlands, they they are the, the never team. They're the nearly team, as I like to say. Sorry, the nearly team. They've been to three World Cup finals and never won any of them. So they always have the talent, but they don't seem to have that winning the fine margins in the biggest game. So I'd stay away from them just historically. Portugal is interesting for me because they have a ton of talent in every area as well. But I think that Cristiano Ronaldo, and if you're a CR7 fan, I apologize. I just think he's Michael Jordan playing for the Washington Wizards right now. He's just not the same guy. And even though we want him to be the same guy, and even though he shows us glimpses of being that same guy, I just think that he can't run anymore. And that brings the whole, the rest of the players have to carry his weight for all the defensive responsibilities. And, and I think that slows them down. But how are you, are you going to not play one of the greatest of all time? Of course, you're going to play him. But I think Portugal will probably be better off when he has moved on, as sad as that is to say out loud. So that would be it in terms of that. Denmark is interesting. Denmark is like the darkest of dark horses. They threw, and it's really difficult to qualify from Europe. They're plus 3,000 to win it all. And I'm not just saying this because I'm Danish boys, but I'm just saying that they went through qualifying with, they won their nine, first nine games and automatically qualified. Last game they lost, but it didn't matter for them. So they kind of rolled out a mixed squad. They're interesting because they didn't, they had a good run in 2018. They've got some sneaky talent in there and they got a goalkeeper in Casper Schmeichel that makes big saves. I do want to say this for anybody betting, think about hot goalkeepers because you're never going to win anything of consequence without a hot goalkeeper between the sticks. And I think that has to be something you should keep an eye on through the group stages as to who is playing the best between the sticks, because they can save you no matter how bad you're playing. If you have a hot goalkeeper, you can always find a way to get a result. And that, that's something I'll be keeping an eye on in the group stages as I try to make my bets for the knockout rounds. Awesome.
I think that's a great note to end on. Um, really enjoyed the time. Hopefully I'll run into you in Marin sometime. Um, my, my son, five years old, is quite a up-and-coming soccer player. I love um, it. When he actually runs in the right direction, he's pretty good. <laughs> he's pretty good. So, all all he needs us. to work on, Jeff, is the, the pullback. Just get comfortable with him planting his left foot and pulling it back with his right and vice versa because the hidden secret of the pullback is that it helps you get comfortable with your balance and your shifting of your weight. And that is what you need to generate power going either way. And the sooner that the kids can get that down, not only can they be great at soccer, they can be great at any sport because that's that weight distribution that you need, that comfortability in your balance, which is so key. I like that. Mm -hmm. That's a great lesson. Thanks just for joining us, Jimmy. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. So that was our conversation uh, with Jimmy and he was amazing. I thought, what, I mean, what did you think Rufus? No, I mean, he's, he, he knows so much about soccer. Um, more than you or fewer than you yeah maybe maybe not as much about refereeing though you never know yeah you did you did throw your referee th- way well, i had around. to throw that in i had to th- i had to make i mean make apparently you feel you did like you're the, you're the least knowledgeable person in the field on this in soccer of the three of us i would say yeah yeah i absolutely am i'm just kidding of course i am um should we ask you a question rufus because it's time that time where we ask you a question Okay, let's let's ask me a question. So I'm gonna pull up our handy door dandy new Discord. If any of you guys are there, like Rufus and I are trying to make fetch happen. Ooh, la, and la. we're using a Discord for conversations, and there's questions for Rufus. And one I'm gonna ask you for Jeff. Because it's not no one wants to ask me questions. They think I'm just a dick and like they don't want to ask me questions. Okay, so Thoughts on how people are pricing up the match. Feels like Rory and Tiger should be bigger favorites. Spieth looks like an old man swinging the clubs these days. So wait, what's the who's playing in this version of the match? I don't know. You don't even know who's playing? No, no, I don't. I it's don't JT and Jordan against Rory and Tiger. JT Come on, that's Jordan pretty interesting. Sure. I mean, but they play, I don't know. You have no interest. Not really. It's an exhibition match. It's honestly You're not going to watch it? No, definitely not. You're not going to watch for well, the best on what golfers. Else is, it depends on what else is on. I mean, I can watch Patrick Rogers like, every week if I want to. Real Housewives of like uh, that's on. Like there's a lot on probably. Okay. What day of the week is it? <laughs> you is really it it's really I sad that you care nothing about, about this. this. I know nothing. Oh. Yeah. I I don't have I don't give any cares. You give no cares, no shits no given. Cares. None. Sorry. Huh. All right. So nothing. Rory's insightful. the best player in that group, but I don't know what to expect from Tiger. So got it. Too much variance for you. And I don't know what the format is or anything like that. Okay. It's Sad. An exhibition match. They're gonna have fun. And <laughs> and I'm sure right, well, Charles. If Barkley you guys want to ask more, if you want to get more insightful answers from Rufus on questions make sure to go to the discord because he just he just did a good sales job for it um did you have any thoughts on the calcutta on the back end after we talked about it are there things that you wanted to add to it before we get into it no i i kind of think uh i kind of think what you came up with is pretty good all right well i'll put it in front of our peeps and any of you guys that want to do maybe we'll start a calcutta channel in the in the discord for people that want pointers or thoughts on on uh on calcutta's we need to do a better we need to have a sheet where people can view and sort of see what this what well that's that's why we sold part of our podcast to a third party so they can do that work for us do you hear that darren and izzy you got to do that hopefully they're listening 
Um, okay. Well, then let's go to picks of the week. Okay. Do you have a pick of the week? I will in a second. How did you do um, last week? Oh, I don't even remember who I picked. Oh, who did I pick? So who did I pick? No. Did I pick Michigan State? I think I picked Michigan State. You did pick Michigan State and you won. And did they win outright? I know the game they were winning by a lot. Yeah, they did win outright. Four and two. Nice. There we go. And I think I, I took the bonus com- I took- credit because they won as a 17 point underdog. I took the commies last week, right? I did. You did. You also slightly, and they won by a hook. So I think you're four and three, and I'm probably two and three or something like that. Maybe I'm three and three. I don't know. We'll have to go back. I'll go back and listen and figure it out. This week, Rufus, you're going to give college again? Yeah, we're going to go college. We're going to, we're going to go with, um, we're going to go Notre Dame laying. Let's see what what what's the line right now, Jeff? Can, eighteen and a half, I think you said. Better not be eighteen and a half. Well, nineteen and a half. Well, I mean that would be great closing line or midweek. Sixteen line and a half. Sixteen. Yeah, and a half. I mean that's that's what I took it at sixteen and sixteen and a half. Where do you like that up to? Um, it's a good question. I'll say it's the biggest position of the week. It is a technically a neutral field game, but, but isn't it the, the biggest Baltimore. position because you accidentally bet it twice? <laughs> Well, we've had it more than twice, but yes. Um, so I make the number. Yeah, but you make it sound like it's the biggest position for a reason beyond your well, own it also, competency. It also is our biggest edge, I think. So, Got it. It was going to be, yeah, it was just bigger than the position we normally would take. Um, I mean, Notre Dame has been hit hard by injuries early in the season, but they don't have anything huge recently. It, I don't know how much you factor in. I mean, how much home field advantage you give to Navy, if any, given the games in Baltimore, which is a lot closer than obviously than um, South Bend, Indiana. But let's say you gave Navy full field, full home field advantage. I would make the number um, 21, a little over 21. So, and I, I'm still inclined to think it's closer to a neutral field game, despite the just because, you know, you're, you're, you're not playing your own stadium. There isn't the same familiarity there with, I think, what's it called? Is it still M&T Bank Stadium? No idea. Yeah. Anyway, call Deer with Notre no Dame eyes. minus 16 and a half. Got it. I'm going to take Denver, the Broncos. Oh, actually, we do traditionally ask you what you think of the bets so that you can tell me what the ones. What do you guys make the Broncos against the Titans? Ooh, I can't tell you that because I haven't set up the NFL sheet, but I did run Massey Peabody power ratings, so I can tell you that. Yeah, tell me what you make the power ratings difference. Okay. Power, um, okay, which teams? Titans versus the Broncos. Titans and Broncos. Titans power rating. Is are we, is Tannehill supposed to come back? That's the real question. Hmm. Let's look up the Google machine. Because I have I have Tennessee three points better on a neutral with Tannehill. Got it. Okay. How about so then if you factor in a little Willis, um, I'm gonna go with that as my pick. I'm gonna go with the Broncos plus three. Okay, so okay. And they're at That's home. That's my play. Price in a little Tannehill uncertainty and a little bye week and yada, yada. I'll take them. Oh, yeah. Coming off the bye. Yeah, certainly that's worth something for sure. <laughs> that, historically, know. we know that. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, we'll be back next week. We're going to do a pod next week, but we'll also have our um, Calcutta World Cup Calcutta live on the YouTube. 
um, for you guys to all watch. Um, and we'll have some of the greatest sports betters in the world on that. So we'll talk to you guys all again next week. The break down the data analytically driven media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are about to end just running off a of leaded.